reading from the letter of Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphi, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to have kept him with me so that he could serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent so that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was separated from you for a time, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. If you have any charges against him, if he's wronged you in any way, add that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your own very self. Yes, brother, I desire some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I know you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, make up the guest room for me, for I am praying that I'm hopeful that by your prayers, I will be generously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, sends his greetings, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does biblical hospitality look like? What does biblical hospitality look like? We know what hospitality is, but as we read scripture, we find that the biblical understanding of hospitality goes so much farther. I was at a hockey game last night. You're not surprised? I was at a hockey game last night, and I was working really hard the entire game. I was trying to find a way that I could pull something out of this game that would be a great metaphor for biblical hospitality. You see, we had uh, taken, Monica and I took, uh, both John Beatty and Jane Shane, our senior and junior warden, and their spouses to a hockey game last night. This was our way of saying thank you to them personally for this, uh, this whole 
an enormous amount of work for this search process over the last year. Jane led our search team. John assisted as a senior warden. And so their reward was hockey. <laughs> Some may say I was just rewarding myself. But as I'm sitting there trying to find a way for biblical hospitality to kind of apply to today's sermon, in the first two minutes of the game, you've got two bloody fights. And I stand there watching these players pummel on each other, and I find myself standing there cheering them on, and then I turn and look at the horror on the look of the face of my junior warden. And I realized there was nothing that I could redeem out of that game now. <laughs> Hockey is not a good metaphor for hospitality. But there is a great story that does help us understand biblical hospitality, and that is the story of Anisimus and Philemon. This is, I think, the best story or one of the best stories in Scripture to describe what biblical radical hospitality looks like. This is where the rubber hits the road. This is where the world gets transformed. Anisimus, as we looked at last week, is Philemon's thieving runaway slave. He's stolen from him, he's run away, but then Anisimus has met the apostle Paul in prison in Rome, has become a Christian, and is assisting Paul in the ministry. Paul knows that this is some kind of reconciliation that's got to eventually happen. Philemon, in his home, meets the church in Colossae. This is the Colossian church. Paul pens a letter to the Colossian church in prison in Rome. And yes, you know it. It's in your Bibles. It's called the letter to the Colossians. Paul needs it delivered. Anisimus knows the territory because Anisimus is from there. So Paul gives Anisimus what we now know is the letter to the Colossians and says, deliver this to Philemon, your former master. Your actual current master, you're just a runaway thieving slave. He knows the great harm and peril for Anisimus. And so Paul writes this little postcard that I think he slaps on top. We call it today the letter to Philemon. And in this postcard, it is a masterful persuasion letter. You see, in the ancient world, there was a desire to be able to persuade someone to do something without telling them overtly and directly. I'm going to hint at what I want you to do, and I want you ultimately to do it because you want to do it, but I've clearly got something I want you to do. I mean, he says in verse 8 of our text, we're in Philemon, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, in chapter 8, verse 8. Accordingly, though I, verse 1, there only is one chapter. Chapter 1, verse 8. Um, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. I mean, Paul's saying right there, there's something required. Here's what you're supposed to do. I, I could tell it to you, but I want you, Philemon, to do it because you want to do it. I want you to do it because you're a Christian. I want you to do it because that's the right thing to do. So in verse 14, he says, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul has three things in this letter 
that he feels are required? Well, two things that are required and one that is kind of a next step. Last week, we looked at the first one. We looked at what it was for him to receive Anisimus. And now, let me just say first, as I said last week again, that whenever you hear a sermon on biblical hospitality, radical forgiveness, and all the rest, make sure that you put it within the caveat that if you're Anisimus, the person in your life that you're thinking of right now that's hurt you and harmed you, if they fall into the category of the four A's, abuse, addiction, adultery, or abandonment, then you need pastoral care in applying this. What I'm not saying is go home and just say, well, Father Paul said, you know, I'm just supposed to radically forgive. And No, when those four are involved, abuse, addiction, adultery, or abandonment, the gospel still speaks over that, but it requires pastoral application. What I'm saying to you is if your anesimus is in one of those categories, then call the church office and ask to speak to one of our clergy. Allow us to help walk you through applying the gospel, which does work in that situation, but needs special care. You hear me? All right, you heard me. Here's what, here's what Paul is requiring. Here's what he's encoding in this letter. First, we looked last week, receive Anesimus. Look at verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you'd receive me, just as. The same way you'd receive me, receive him. It's this amazing word in verse 17 where he says, if you consider me partner, the word root there for partner is the same word as koinonia. Remember last week I said that koinonia is this word for fellowship. It means that it's this picture of a radical family and community that if you're in Christ, you now have been brought into this thing called the fellowship, the community, that you are now one in Christ. You've been brought into this new kind of family dynamic where you can't just say, oh, some are out and some are in. No, if you're in Christ, you're part of this koinonia. That's what he means when he says, if you consider me partner, if you are part of my koinonia in the gospel, then receive him as you receive me. He says the same thing in verse 6. At least he points to it. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith would produce the full effect and what, it, what sharing of faith means is that same word koinonia. That you living out your faith, oh Philemon, you are full of faith and love. Well, as you live out that faith in community, I pray that it would have its full effect. In other words, that you will understand that there is something required of you, Philemon. This Anisimus, this thieving runaway slave is now in Christ. He is now in the koinonia. Bishop Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, no Christian has the right to refuse a welcome to one whom God has welcomed. I mean, let that just sit over you. No Christian has the right to refuse a welcome to one whom God has welcomed. This means, this koinonia means the settled determination to share fully in mutual fellowship with all those who share the faith. However awkward or angular or muddled or misguided or simply different or Canadian that they may be. No, that's not in there. This is koinonia. 
This is what it means to be in Christ. So you need to receive Anesimus. But he goes on further. The second thing that is required is verse 18, that he forgives Anesimus. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul knows there's a debt. Paul knows that he stole from him. And at first it sounds like he's simply saying, I'll pay it for him. And he is saying that. I mean, literally he's saying, I'm penning these words with my own hand. It's like I'm signing the credit card statement. If he owes you money, I will pay it for him. But Paul's not really saying that. He's not saying, I'm just going to pay his debt so it's all a wash. He's saying, no, you need, you need to do something. You need to forgive him. It has nothing to do with me paying his debt. That's why in verse 19, he goes for the low blow. Verse 19 goes on to say, to say nothing about you owing me even your own self. What is Philemon own Paul? Well, Philemon is in debt to Paul for leading him to Christ. And you may think that's a funny way to describe that. I mean, come on, like, are you actually saying that now he's indebted to you? Well, Paul's going to say, if you're going to start pulling on debts, then I'm going to start pulling on debts. All right? So I led you to Christ. That's how you're indebted to me. I led your thieving slave, Anesimus, to Christ as well. So you're both indebted to me for the gospel. Just FYI, and that's a pretty major debt. I mean, it kind of gave you eternal life and salvation. So as far as who's in debt to who here, but you know, if you really need me to pay it, of course I'll pay it. But verse 20 goes on to say even further. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. I mean, it's kind of going further. He's saying, I kind of want a, a, a return on my investment. You know, I, I, you're, you're kind of owing me for the gospel, and I want a return on that investment. But it's not that he's actually pulling on a return. What he's doing, again, is using a word play. Remember last week we looked at verse 11 and how Anesimus' name means useful? Anesimus, Mr. Useful, right? And then in verse 11 he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful, which is interesting because the word useless is the word akrestos, which if it, you think it sounds a bit like Christos, Christos, it's supposed to. He's playing with the words. He's saying that formerly without Christ, a Christo, Christos, a Christos, he was useless to you. But now that he's in Christ, he's truly useful. He's truly anesimus. And now he says in verse 20, I want some usefulness from you. That's what benefit means. It's the same root word. You know, I, I'm getting some use out of Mr. Useful finally. Philemon, I'd like some usefulness out of you too. I mean, your runaway, runaway thieving slave has become very useful to me. Can I get some usefulness from you too, Philemon? I mean, he's definitely not being that subtle in what he's calling Philemon to do. And then verse 20 goes on to say, refresh my heart in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord or in Christ now, back in verse 7, he complimented Philemon. Philemon actually means, if, if Anesimus means Mr. Useful, Philemon means man of love, Mr. Love. So you got Mr. Useful and Mr. Love. And in verse 7, he says to Mr. Love, I have derived great joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints 
have been refreshed through you. I mean, it's a great compliment. He's saying, you, Mr. Love, are refreshing the hearts of the saints. Well, guess what? Verse 20, Mr. Love, I want you to refresh my heart. Refresh mine. Refresh it as you do what is required, that you forgive this slave. And don't get me wrong, I, I get how hard this is. I really get how hard this call to forgiveness is. I mean, as C.S. Lewis says, you know, everybody agrees that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until they have to practice it. I mean, we're so good at asking for forgiveness and we're so bad at giving it. And I wonder if Paul is thinking of that parable that Jesus told his disciples when he's writing this to Philemon. I mean, truly, there is no other way for a Christian to live in response to what God has done for us. In, in Matthew chapter 18, there's this great moment when Peter, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been listening to Jesus and he thinks, I'm beginning to get this and maybe I, I can be a real holy guy, Jesus. Verse uh, 21 of, of Matthew 18, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, wait for it, seven times? Now what Peter's doing that, we don't think that's very impressive, but the rabbinic scholarship of Peter's day said three you were required to forgive three times. It's like three strikes, you're out. Peter's trying to be super holy. Hey, Jesus, seven. Are you impressed? And Jesus says, no. Seven times 70. And Peter's going, 490? Okay, so when we get to 491, then you're in trouble. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, you never run out in forgiving because God never runs out in forgiving you. God isn't sitting there with a ledger. Oh, 491, ha <laughs> ha, suckers. God never stops. So why should we? He goes on to tell this parable. He says, uh, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. If you take this at $10 an hour minimum wage, that's $4 billion. Just when you do the translation, because a talent is a year's wages, it's 10,000 years of wages. $10 an hour, that's $4 billion. So, and you say, that's ridiculous. Jesus is using ridiculous numbers and he's saying, yeah, it's just as how ridiculous you are when you've been forgiven so much and you don't forgive other people. I'll use ridiculous numbers to show you just how ridiculous this is. $4 billion is owed. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children that all he had and payments would be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master forgave the debts. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him $8,000. Yeah, that's the translation. It's 100 denarii, 100 days wages. And if you do the same calculation I just used, that's $8,000, 4,800,000. And he seized that servant and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. 
So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sound familiar? Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, no doubt. Went and reported it to the master. All had taken place. And then the master summoned him, said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. Jesus, teach us to pray. Well, part of that prayer he teaches them is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness. I mean, we come to Eucharist every Sunday to be reminded of the means by which God has forgiven us in Christ. The death and resurrection of the Son of God. We tell the salvation story again and again. And you know what we do before that? Is we have the passing of the peace. And that's not a time just to talk about hockey scores, and yes, I can be guilty of that, but it is actually a time of, yes, greeting one another. There's koinonia, we're all one in Christ, but the passing of the peace is really about an opportunity for reconciliation. An opportunity to say, before we come and participate in this great act of our forgiveness, we better be about forgiving those in our lives where we are unreconciled. That's what the passing of the peace is really gives us the opportunity for. You don't just receive Anisimus, Philemon, you forgive Anisimus. But thirdly, I need you to do more than just what's required of you. As a Christian, you are required to receive him. He's part of the koinonia. You are required to forgive him. You have been so forgiven. But in verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience, I know you will do even more than I say. Here's what's not required. Not required. Free Anisimus. Free. That's the even more than I say. Free Anisimus from slavery. Release him as a slave. He already implied it in verse 16, where he says, perhaps this is why you, you, you were departed from him for a while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. I mean, the challenge with the Bible, people will sometimes say, is that the New Testament doesn't categorically you know, condemn slavery. I mean, you look at Ephesians 6, and there's a household code describing how Christian slaves and Christian masters are to work well together. You look at the Old Testament and you see all kinds of examples of how you can faithfully, in a godly way, treat your slaves. So though the Bible does not categorically remove slavery as an option, it's living within the world that it was written, the trajectory of the Bible is clearly pushing towards emancipation from slavery. The Bible is all about freedom. I mean, look at the, look at the Exodus. You know, they're enslaved to Pharaoh and God frees them. The new exodus in Christ, Jesus, is that we are now enslaved not to Pharaoh, but enslaved to sin and death. And Jesus comes to free us, comes to receive, emancipate us, free us from slavery. The whole Bible is about freedom. 
And Paul reminds Philemon of that six times in this text. 25 verses, six times he hits the language of imprisonment. Look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Verse 9. For love's sake, I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Ten, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order to serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment. Verse 22, implied, at the same time prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. In other words, freed from prison. And finally, verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Why does Paul keep hitting the prison theme? Why the prison theme again and again in this letter? Six times in 25 verses because he's making this point. Oh, Philemon, you have all been praying that I would be freed from my bondage. Guess what? There's one about to come into your midst who's in a different kind of bondage, and you're the one holding him in bondage. Oh, you're praying for me to be freed, to be freed from my bondage. That's great. Why don't you not be a hypocrite and free the one in the midst of you who you have in bondage? I mean, Paul is not being gentle here. Paul is being very clear. Philemon, you don't have to do it. The Roman law does not require it, and it seems that even the law of God does not require it, require it. But clearly, clearly, your love for Jesus requires it. Philemon doesn't have to go this far, but will he? Will he just do the bare minimum? I, I know about doing the bare minimum. I know about you. I'm really good at the bare minimum. You know, all right? I have to tithe. All right tithe, but not a penny more. I'm really good at serving. All right, I'm going to serve. I was a servant leader. I worked hard at it. It's now 5 p.m. Servant, servant leadership is over. I've done my bare minimum, right? I've offered grace. I've been very, very gracious. I've been more gracious than all those people, so I'm done with being gracious. I've done my bare minimum. Paul is saying, will you go beyond the minimum? Forget the minimum? Will you go the extra mile? Will you go beyond? I mean, isn't this what grace is? Going beyond the minimum? I mean, the beginning of the letter begins with the grace of our Lord, you know, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the letter ends in verse 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's not just a greeting, it's the center of what we believe. God has come to us and has given us what we do not deserve, what we have not earned, that is grace. In God's eyes, friends, we are all runaway thieving slaves. And for each one of us, he's not just received us, He's not just forgiven us, but he's freed us. He's gone far beyond what we can even ask or imagine. That is radical hospitality. Now, what does Philemon do? Well, we don't know. We don't know. It's, we're sort of left on a cliffhanger. What happened? But we can do some educated guessing. If you'll indulge me. Here's some educated guessing. Here's what we know. The letter survived. I mean, the letter survived. What, 
it didn't get delivered to Philemon. He read the first few lines of it and then went, ooh, I'm going to just stick that in my pocket. No one's going to see that. No way I am going to receive and forgive this slave. No, clearly, I mean, the letter survived. He read it and though Paul is persuading, it's very clear. There's a requirement here. Receive this one and forgive this one. And so it seems that he did receive and free Anismus. But also the letter survived. And as I said, it's not that subtle what this more than what I'm asking you for is. I mean, he, it's clear that he's saying you've got to free him from slavery. And the fact that the letter survived seems to indicate that Philemon went the extra step and freed Anisimus. And the letter also was canonized. It ended up in Scripture. You know, somehow by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, this little postcard was so loved in the church, so well distributed, so copied and sent around to all the churches all throughout the known world that by the time that the bishop sat down to receive what was truly given to us from God as Holy Spirit-inspired writings, the whole church said, this is clearly given by the Holy Spirit. Why this letter, among all the other writings between the apostles, why did this make it in? Is it possible that it was so popular because it memorialized a well-known event in the late first century? Is it possible that this letter was so popular because it memorialized people who were so well-known in the late first century? Is it possible that when Ignatius, only a couple decades later, writes to the Colossian church, the church that met in Philemon's home, the church that Anisimus, this runaway, thieving slave returned to, it seems was forgiven, was received and freed, is it possible that only two or three decades after this is written, that Ignatius is talking about you-know-who, when he says this to the Colossian church, in God's name, I received therefore your large congregation in the person of Onesimus, your bishop in this world. Your bishop in this world, Onesimus. And then here's the description. The early church fathers, by the way, believed this was the same Onesimus. Whose love, this bishop, Anisimus, whose love is beyond words. My prayer is that you should love him in the spirit of Jesus Christ and all be like Bishop Anisimus. Blessed is the one who lets you have such a bishop. A slave become a bishop. A man who's known as one with love beyond words. How did Anisimus? Learn such love because he received it from Christ and from Philemon, the true man of love. What does biblical hospitality look like then? It looks like a church that takes koinonia, fellowship, oneness in Christ seriously. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Biblical hospitality looks like people who receive and forgive and go beyond the minimum. Biblical hospitality looks like Philemon and Anisimus. Biblical hospitality looks like Christ. And Christ Church, we are called to nothing less than looking like Christ.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.